So you have your Bibles open now to 2 Samuel chapter number six. For all of you who are a part of Brookstone, you know that for a number of weeks now, uh, we have been thinking about the life of King David. And we're calling this series, Walking in the Footsteps of the King. And this is what we're endeavoring to do, is to learn principles for living from the life of the most mentioned person in the entire Bible. King David. Over the last month, we've learned some really important things. Let me just review quickly and tell you what those four things are that we've learned. We began uh, at the most obvious place where we learned that David was a man after God's own heart. This is the defining characteristic of David's life. It is the thing that qualified him to be the king. It is the reason that God chose him to be the king. God said, I have found a man after my own heart. The second thing that we learned about was that epic battle where David faced the giant of Goliath. And we enjoyed studying about that moment there in the Valley of Elah when David with a sling and a stone took down the nine foot, nine inch tall giant of Gath, the champion of the Philistine army, Goliath. In week number three, we talked about David's transformation in the waiting room. And you'll remember that it was at least 15 years from the time that David was anointed to be king until he actually was coronated or crowned as king. And during those years of waiting, God was growing David and God was transforming him. And then last Sunday, we talked about the fact that David was surrounded by mighty men. Do you remember? He didn't get to the top of his fence post all alone, like none of us ever do. David was surrounded by mighty men, and we talked about the value of those mighty men. Now, the application has been pretty obvious over these weeks, hasn't it? That if we want to walk in the footsteps of King David, then like David, we should position ourselves humbly downstream from God. This is what it means to be after his heart to position ourselves where what God values and what God cares about and what causes God to celebrate and what causes God to weep and the, and, and the, the values of the Lord are flowing into our lives. That we are behind him, that we are beneath him, that he is the Lord of our lives, that we are after the heart of God. We've learned that we need to stand up to the giants in our lives. We talked about the giant agenda, that every giant that rises up against us has the agenda of stopping our spiritual development, stopping our forward progress in our walk with God. And just like David had to stand up to Goliath if the army of Israel was to move forward, in the same way, we must stand up to the giants that rise against us, the giants of unforgiveness. That's a big one. That giant of unforgiveness rises up or the giant of fear or the giant of doubt or a thousand other giants that might rise up against us. In week number three, we talked about this idea of being transformed and we as well all find ourselves in the waiting room from time to time. And like David, we need to learn to embrace God's timing and not to get ahead of him, but to trust him that while I'm waiting for whatever it is that I'm trusting him to accomplish, that I know that in the waiting he is working and that he is changing me. 
And then, of course, we learned that we need some mighty men in our lives, some mighty men and women, some godly men and women who will surround us. And we need to be part of the mighty men and women that are around others. You need to be in a circle like David had around him. In fact, let me encourage you, one of the great places where you could find those mighty people in your lives and where you could become mighty for someone else would be in a small group. And I want to challenge you, if you're not currently connected to a small group here at Brookstone, take that step. Uh, Become connected. Uh, Comment today. Say, hey, I want to be in a small group. Put that in the comments and we'll be in touch with you. Go to our website and uh, register uh, to be a part of a small group. Email or call the church and talk to Pastor Chris Owens and say, hey, get me connected with a group. Maybe you might even want to start a group. We'd love to help you do that. But it's in these groups of people like David had with those men we learned about last week, Shema and Eleazar and Adino, these men that were around him in the same way we can have men and women around our lives. Now, today we're coming to week number five in our study of David, and we're going to learn about worship. We're going to learn that David was a man committed to, a man passionate about worship. I want you to write this principle down. If we're going to apply this, here's what we need to know. If we are to walk in the footsteps of King David, then we will embrace a lifestyle of worship. If we are going to walk in his footsteps, then we must become a person who embraces a lifestyle of authentic worship. Now, as you're jotting that principle down, that foundational truth down, let's let's think for just a minute about what worship is. Uh, The word worship in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word uh, throughout the Old Testament that's translated worship is a word which carries this idea of bowing down. Uh, To worship means that I bow before or I kneel to another And that I, in my bowing, in my posture of humility, that I am ascribing worth to the God before whom I am bowing. So the word itself means that I must go low and by default then God is exalted. That's the the Old Testament idea of worship, to bow low and ascribe great worth. Now the New Testament word is really similar to that, but it's a bit more intimate. Because the New Testament word is a word which means to prostrate oneself, or again, to to bow low. But then it means to direct kisses toward. You know, I've taught you this for years here at Brookstone, that the word worship in the New Testament, you think of John chapter 4, I believe verse 4, where Jesus says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he says this, the father is seeking people like that or seeking such to worship him. And the word that's translated worship there is the word proskuneo. And it means to direct, to prostrate or to direct. Kineo is kisses. So when we think of worship in the New Testament sense, we're still thinking of this idea of bowing before the Lord, exalting and ascribing worth to him, but then directing our kisses toward him. And in fact, the word literally means to kiss the hand rather like a dog would lick his master's hand. It's this idea of absolute devotion, absolute adoration, absolute loyalty 
where I bow down, ascribe worth, and love him completely. And worship carries this idea of bowing down and of praising and of giving thanks. Those three concepts, uh, worship or adoration, uh, celebration or praise, and then thanksgiving or being grateful to God. Now, when you think about these definitions of worship, then one thing becomes abundantly clear, and it is that worship has to be more than just an event that I attend, right? It's not just a service where I go to a 90-minute or a 60-minute assembly, and there I worship, and then I leave, and in the rest of my life, all the other hours of my days and days of my weeks and weeks of my months and months of my years, when I'm not in the assembly, then I'm not a worshiper. No, that's not true at all. We are to be worshipers all the time. My life bowed low 24-7, exalting him in all that I think and say and do, adoring him, offering kisses toward him in every attitude and response of my life. And so that would mean that I worship God when I obey his word. When I read the word of God and it convicts me and I, and I surrender in that area and I say, God, forgive me for not obeying you in this regard or God, forgive me for sinning in that way. And I surrender, I submit to his word. I'm going low. That obedience to God's word is an act of worship. I worship God when I serve his people and his purposes Because in doing so, I'm saying no to myself and I'm going low and I'm saying, Lord, you and what you're doing in the lives of other people matters to me. And I want to be a part of that. I mentioned that you should learn to share the gospel, that you should sign up for our We Share class. Why? Well, because people need the Lord and you need to tell them. But also because when I share the gospel, I'm worshiping him. I'm making Christ the priority and I'm adoring him. I worship God when I steward the resources that he entrusts to me. When I take the money and the possessions that God has entrusted to me and I put him first by investing in his kingdom and being generous with what he provides to me rather than consuming it all on myself. Do you know what I'm doing? I'm worshiping. It is an act of worship when I steward God's resources. When I'm sensitive to his spirit or when I resist temptation when I prioritize my time with him and I begin my day with him every day or I set aside time every day to be in his word and in prayer, all of these things are acts of worship that I participate in, not in an assembly, not at a church service, but in the course of living. All of the events, all of the attitudes, all of the actions and the responses of my life can be acts of worship. And so we need to become people who embrace this idea that I am an authentic worshiper uh, all of the time. Now, with all of that said, though, I do want to focus your attention today on the surpassing value of the worship gathering, the assembly of God's people to worship the Lord. This, This idea, this concept of corporate worship. When we have the privilege of coming together and together 
giving him worship. Now I will tell you as a long time pastor, here's what I know, that when people who are personal and private and daily worshipers assemble together to worship him in a corporate setting, the worship is heavenly. But when people come together who are not worshiping individually and try to worship him corporately, then it can be a struggle. So while I want us all to be individual, daily, moment by moment worshipers, I want us to see in the text today this surpassing value of the worship event. Our text in 2 Samuel 6 and in 1 Chronicles 15 highlights a worship event that is so magnificent, that is so profound, that occurs in the city of Jerusalem during the time when David is the king of Israel. It is so profound that this worship event has David literally dancing in the streets. And I want you to see this with me. We're going to read it. Do you have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter number 6? I want us to begin reading right there in verse number 1. Why don't you follow along? 2 Samuel 6 and verse 1 says, And David gathered together. Stop right there. David gathered together. You know what that is? It's an assembly. It's a, it's a calling together of the people of God. We would call that having church. He called them together for a specific purpose of worship. Again, David gathered together or assembled all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from uh, Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwells between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments. They, uh, they played on these instruments which were made of fir wood. Uh, these would be uh, even harps and psalteries and timbrels or tambourines and on cornets and on cymbals. They literally struck up the band as they go before this ark of God worshiping him. Verse 6 says, and when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and he grabbed a hold of it because the oxen shook it. As they went across the, the bumpy, rocky threshing floor, the cart began to shake, the ark began to shake, and Uzzah grabbed the ark. Well, verse 7 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David was displeased, concerned, frightened, because the Lord had made a breach. God had broken in upon them. He made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. It means to break out against or to come against Uzzah. 
And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household because the ark had been taken in there. Now, hold your finger in 2 Samuel. Go over with me to 1 Chronicles chapter number 15. 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Let's pick up the text there. Verse 1. And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God. And he pitched for it a tent. And David said, none ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem. Stop right there. What is that? That's an assembly. That's what we would call church. God gathered, verse 3, all of Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord unto his place, which he had prepared for it. And David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. Skip to verse 12. Verse 12 says, and David said to them, the sons of Aaron, the Levites, David said to them, you are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both you and your brothers, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after the due order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves or the poles thereon as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And David spake unto the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. Again, striking up the band, now singing to the Lord. Go to verse 25. Verse 25. So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And it came to pass when God helped the Levites that were bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they then offered seven bullocks and seven rams. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen and all the Levites that bear the ark and the singers and Shenaniah, the master of the song with the singers, David also had upon him an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the cornet and with trumpets and with cymbals and with making a noise with psalteries and with harps. And it came to pass... As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looking out a window, saw King David dancing. There's the word, my Baptist friends, dancing 
and playing instruments in the streets and she despised him in her heart. Now I have to tell you, before we go any further, I, I love this, this uh, celebration that we're reading about in this passage. But before we begin to dig into the actual event of worship, let me just ask you, did you notice the obviously prominent fixture in both passages that we read? Did you see that one fixture that was mentioned over and over again? In fact, 23 times in the verses that we've just read, you have found the mention of this very important fixture. It is called the ark. You see it over and over again, this ark. Now, the word that's translated ark means a box. It literally is what this ark uh, was, a box or a chest. We would call it a treasure chest. It was about the size of most treasure chests that we would think of. Um, it can also mean a coffin. Uh, it is a small box that is called in our passage the ark of God or the ark of the Lord or the ark of the Lord God, the Lord God of Israel. It's also called in this passage the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And in the book of Exodus, it's mentioned many times where it is called the ark of testimony. The ark of God, ark of the Lord, ark of the covenant of the Lord, or the ark of testimony. Now, speaking of the book of Exodus, where it's called the ark of testimony, uh, in Exodus chapter 25, you have the instructions that God gives to Moses for building this ark. Uh, I'm going to read it. Why don't you turn with me? I think it's worth uh, our taking a moment to, to see about its construction. Go to Exodus chapter number 25 and look with me in verse number 10. Exodus 25 and verse 10. And this passage will explain to us why this little box is so sacred as to be called by these names. The ark of God, the ark of the Lord. It is God's ark or the Lord's ark or the ark of the covenant or the ark of testimony. So I'm in Exodus 25 and verse number 10. For the Bible says, God giving instructions, they shall make an ark of shittim wood. It is to be two cubits and a half long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a, uh, a cubit and a half high or tall. Now those dimensions work out to be about four feet long and then about two feet wide and about two feet high. So it's, it's not a big ark at all. It's, it's really a small little box. He says in verse number 11, you are to overlay this box, this ark, with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make upon it a crown of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, put them on the four corners, and then two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. Then you shall make uh, staves or poles of shittim wood. Overlay the poles with gold as well. Verse 14, you shall put the staves into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by these poles. 
the poles or the staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken out. And you shall put into the ark. Now, this is a box. And boxes are made for holding things, right? Um, chests are made for holding uh, things. Sometimes not so important. In this case, very important. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So here you have in Exodus 25, the construction of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. It's a box overlaid with gold holding something very important. Now it also has a top. Uh, Every box that holds important items needs to have a top, right? So this box has a a top as well. Keep reading, verse 17, still in Exodus 25. He says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. It's to be two and a half cubits, uh, uh, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, cubit and a half the breadth thereof. You shall make two cherubim of gold. These are uh, uh, angelic uh, uh, cherubim of gold. They are to be beaten work or handmade of gold. Uh, Put one on each of the two ends of the mercy seat. Verse 19, make one of the cherubim on one end and uh, the other cherub on the other end. Uh, even of the mercy seat you shall make of the cherubim uh, on the two ends thereof. Verse 20 says, And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with, the, <clears throat> with their wings, and their faces shall look to one another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat above upon the ark, And in the ark, you shall put the testimony. There it is again, what's inside of it. You shall put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there at the ark, at the mercy seat, there I will meet with you. I will commune with you from above the mercy seat and between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of of Israel. And so what you have in Exodus 25 is this description of this ark or this box and the mercy seat on top of it. And when you read about its construction and about its contents, you realize why it is so sacred and such a valuable item. It is because it is into this ark that the testimony or the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone were placed. And then upon the ark, the mercy seat was placed on the top and God would come and meet himself with Israel at that mercy seat. Leviticus 16 is another passage which talks about this box and how that on the day of atonement every year, the high priest would come before this Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the sins of Israel for a full year. He would sprinkle that blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat. And the blood on the mercy seat would in fact purchase their forgiveness, their covering for one full year. I brought a picture today and I wanted you to see a picture of what this Ark of the Covenant looks like because it's described in the text, but it helps us to have a graphic uh, picture or uh, an artist's rendering of what that might look like. An incredibly important uh, piece of furniture, an incredibly sacred fixture in the life of Israel and in their relationship with God. Now think about it. This Ark of the Covenant, 
according to Exodus 25, was created uh, upon the instruction of God to Moses by a man named Bezalel, handcrafted in the days following Israel's escape from Egypt. When Moses had led them out of Egypt, it was immediately following that, that um, this box, this ark, uh, was crafted in the wilderness following their departure from Egypt. In all of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, this box was with them. Uh, they followed this box. As God would move, they would carry this ark and, and God would meet with them there. There was never a day in those 40 years in the wilderness that they did not have the presence of God with them at this sacred box, this ark of the covenant. After the death of Moses and Joshua's ascension to power as the leader of Israel, it crossed the Jordan River with Joshua and the people of Israel. It came from the wilderness into the land of Canaan. And the Ark of the Covenant then traveled with them as they went about conquering the land of Canaan. It was the Ark of the Covenant that was that sacred place before entering the land and after entering the land where God would meet with them. And all through their years of conquest, the ark was there. Now, it was after David became the king and conquered Jerusalem and began to build the city of Jerusalem as the political and religious capital of Israel. It was then that the ark was finally brought to Jerusalem. And it's that arrival of the ark in Jerusalem that prompts the worship celebration that we read about in our text today. The ark was brought into a tent that David had pitched for it. Ultimately, Solomon, David's son, would build the temple, as you know, and the ark would be placed into the Holy of Holies in the temple, and there it remained for hundreds of years. And it's interesting that the ark disappears from Scripture. Uh, the last time the ark is seen in scripture is during the reign of King Josiah. It's just before Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes to destroy Jerusalem and to destroy the temple. Just before that, the ark disappears from the biblical text and it disappears from history. And the ark has now been missing for some 2,600 years. It has not been seen. And you might wonder, you might ask, well, where is it? Where is this Ark of the Covenant now? Well, it's a question a lot of people are asking, and there's quite a bit of speculation. And the truth is, we just don't know. It could be that the Ark was destroyed. It may not exist any longer. Many people believe that the Ark of the Covenant is in hiding just before the temple and the city of Jerusalem fell, it was tucked away for safekeeping, hidden in one of the many, many caverns underneath the Temple Mount. And that it's there residing today, waiting to be found. Of course, it can't be searched for now because the Muslim uh, world controls that part of Israel, that Temple Mount. No way to excavate and, and look for it now. But many people believe that it's hid there. Others believe that it's hid on Mount Nebo where Moses looked across and saw uh, the Holy Land. The truth is we don't really know. Here's what we do know. That the Ark of the Covenant is this sacred chest, this sacred box that inspired a celebration of worship 
where David would assemble all of Israel. He would strike up the band. He would robe himself as a priest rather than a king. And he would come dancing into the streets of Jerusalem in abandoned worship of Almighty God. Now to our modern thinking, we look at that and say, why would David be so inspired to worship because of the arrival of a box? Well, quite simply because the Ark of the Covenant to David and to all of Israel represented the glory and the grace of God all in one place. In fact, as I've mentioned, the Ark of the Covenant was the very place where God met with them. It was the presence of God. In fact, the ark has been called the place of his presence. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this. And I want you to think with me about this for just a moment. Consider th- this amazing grace, right? This, this unbelievable mercy and condescending that the limitless, boundless eternal God, the transcendent God would make a covenant with his people, Israel, that he would raise up a man named Moses to be the mediator of that covenant. And that Moses would mediate between God on one side and the people of Israel on the other side. And that God would prescribe a system of sacrifices, the shedding of blood, where this relationship, this covenant would be sealed and secured by the sacrifice of the blood of, of, uh, of lambs. That God would make this covenant, he would write it down, he would codify it and write it with his finger in stone tablets. And then he would put that stone tablet, that book of the law, those commandments into a sacred box kept there safely, that he would place mercy on top of the covenant, that he would cover their relationship with mercy, that the blood of that atoning sacrifice every single year would come and it would be placed upon that mercy seat to remind them that their mercy had been provided by the sacrifice of an animal that had died in their place and that it was safe and secure. They were safe in this covenant because the, the, uh, the law that held them in relationship with God was in his sacred chest under that mercy and sealed by his blood. And then this limitless, boundless, transcendent God would come and he would meet with them at that place, at that ark of the covenant. What incredible mercy. He was everywhere and yet he was there. He knew no limits but he limited himself to this box. He had no boundaries, but he bound himself to meet with them in this tent. And this eternal God who was in all places came to be with them there. And so when this presence of God in the ark came into Jerusalem, David then assembled the people and they worshiped and they worshiped with reckless abandon. 
Now, in a far greater way, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? In a far greater way, the eternal, boundless, limitless, transcendent God has made a covenant with his people, not just Israel, but with his people, all who will come to him by faith. He has made a covenant with us through the mediation, not of Moses, but of Jesus. That Jesus Christ is the mediator of this relationship that we now have with God. And God has codified that relationship. He has written it down in his word, but more fully, more completely, more truly, he has written it down on our hearts. He has written his law, not on stone and placed in a wooden box, but he has written his law on the hearts of his transformed people. And he has put his word in a temple, a tent, if you will, not a tent of goatskin like David made, not a temple of stone like Solomon built, but the temple of our flesh, of our bodies. He has written his word on our hearts and he covers us every morning with mercy. Every single morning, his mercies are new. And every single morning when I rise in relationship with God through the mediation of his son, Jesus, with his word on my heart and his mercy over my life, I am rising under the blood of Jesus Christ, which holds me secure in that relationship and in a much greater way than the glory of God coming to a box and meeting with Israel. The spirit of almighty God dwells within me and he meets with me and dwells with me and lives with me every moment of every day. He is everywhere, but he is here. And how can we do anything but worship? Because he has come to meet with us. And to be with us. And so like David and his thousands parading through the streets of Jerusalem, celebrating that God is here. Loved ones, this is what we do when we assemble to worship. We parade together. We come together to celebrate that the God who is everywhere is in fact here. Now, if I'm going to be like David, if I'm going to walk in the footsteps of the king, then I must embrace this lifestyle of authentic worship. But our text tells us, go with me back to 2 Samuel and to 1 Chronicles. Our text tells us how it is that we can worship God appropriately. And in the time that we have left today, I want to just talk to you about what authentic and maybe what we would call biblically appropriate worship should look like. Only a couple of things to note here and then we'll be done. Uh, write this down if you're a note taker. I want you to notice from the example of David and his worship service, we learn that authentic worship can never regard God as merely common. Oh, loved ones, I want you to hear this. If you're going to be a worshiper, you have to know this. That when our worship is authentic, when it is biblically appropriate, it will never humanize or commonize 
God. We can never worship when we view God as merely common. Remember the definition of worship. It means to bow down before. And when someone bows before another, when someone bends low or kneels before another, the very act of kneeling or the very virtue of a spirit of humility to bow before by its very action exalts the one before whom we are kneeling. Worship cannot come into an experience of worship on an even plane with Christ. We must kneel and as we bow before him, he is exalted. And this is in fact what it means to worship. Biblical worship begins with, consists fully of, and concludes with, and continues until the next moment of worship with the absolute exaltation of Jesus Christ. That is how authentic worship is formulated. It doesn't approach him on a level plane. It exalts him fully. Listen to how Habakkuk says this in Habakkuk 2 and verse 20. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The earth is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't speak to the Lord. It doesn't mean we can't sing before the Lord. But it means that the attitude and the posture of our hearts is that he is upon his throne and I am bowing mute before him. I have no defense before him save Christ. I have no words before him because all words fail me. I have no no words worthy of his name. He is in his holy temple and I before him have an attitude of complete submission. This is Habakkuk's point. Psalm 95 and verse number six, the psalmist says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is what worship is. So do you get it? If you're going to be an authentic worshiper, if you're going to embrace the lifestyle of worship like David did, then you must remember that it always is to have Christ exalted completely. Now, the two passages that we read today, these two passages, it's the tale of two tries. It really is. It's the tale of two attempts to bring the ark of God into the city of Jerusalem. The first attempt is in 2 Samuel chapter number 6. We read it a few minutes ago where David gathers Israel together. He wants to do the right thing. He's going to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. And he does so, but with the wrong attitude of worship. Watch what happens, verse number three. When they begin to bring the ark of God into into Jerusalem, out of the house of Abinadab, verse three says, they set the ark upon a new cart. Now, listen carefully. They take the ark of God, this sacred chest where the word of God, the 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 word which codifies their relationship with God, covered by its mercy seat with the cherubim where God dwells with them. And they put it on a cart pulled by oxen. It may as well have been crates of onions. (laughs) This is what you would do with barrels of olives 
not with the ark of the covenant of the Lord God of Israel. They put it on a cart. And as the oxen were going across the ground, this ark of God, this, this place where God would meet with his people is rattling around and, and bouncing about on the cart. The text says they come to Nacon's threshing floor and Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, just sticks his hand out and touches the ark. His, his, I'm sure, soiled and dirty and unwashed hand upon the ark of God. As if it is a common thing. As if it is not holy. Well, the text tells us, as you know, that God broke out in anger against Uzzah and against David and this entire assembly where he had been regarded as so common as to be put upon a cart. He broke out against that and Uzzah died there and the cart procession stopped. The worship service ended and the ark went into the house of Obed-Edom. That was the first attempt. But then you come to the second attempt in 1 Chronicles 15. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2, David says, having learned better, David says, no one ought to carry the ark of God except the Levites, for it is the Levites, the priests, that God has called to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. So he gathered Israel together to come bring up the ark but before they touched it, before they started their procession, he, verse 4, assembled the children of Aaron, the Levites. Verse number 12, he said to them, you are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel into the place. Verse 13, this is what went wrong the first time. For because we did not do it this way the first time, the Lord broke out upon us because we did not seek to worship him after the due order. Verse 14, so the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel and the children of the Levites that carried the ark of God, they carried it upon their shoulders with the poles thereon as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now this is the way it was prescribed. We read it in Exodus 25. This is the way God had prescribed for the ark to be carried, not on a cart, not pulled by, by cattle, but carried on the shoulders of his people. In fact, you notice the Bible says that when they carried, skip over to verse number um, 27, 26, 27, that when they carried this ark, verse 26, it came to pass when the Lord, or when God helped the Levites that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They stopped and they offered seven bullocks and seven rams. Now you can imagine the fear. Remember in 2 Samuel 6, David was afraid because God had broken out and killed Uzzah. He was afraid of it, afraid to touch the Ark. He says to the priests now on the second attempt, you prepare yourself, you get ready, you sanctify yourselves. You're going to carry the Ark this time. Well, you can imagine the fear. What if we do it wrong? What if this is not correct? What if we die like Uzzah died? And they pick it up and they begin to carry it. And once they take some steps and they realize God is not angry, God is accepting our worship. They stop and they worship him. They offer these sacrifices, seven young bulls and seven rams. 
But isn't this what worship should look like? Anyway, isn't this the proper view of worship? The Lord being exalted, carried along and lifted up by the people who know him and love him. Not as a common thing, carried in on a cart. If you want to worship God, you have to know that you can never regard God as merely common. May God help us in this regard, church. May God help us to always assemble and know that when we assemble, we are joined by one who is high above us. We are joined by one who is to be exalted as we bend low. Well, that's the first thing. Authentic worship can never be regarded as merely common. Secondly and finally, we should understand that authentic worship is a celebration, is a celebration of glory and of grace. A celebration of glory and of grace. And those two things go together in worship because when I recognize the exaltation of God in Christ and I recognize his value and his glory and yet he has given me grace, then it inspires great worship. Two things quickly. When we worship God authentically, we will participate with enthusiastic praise. I don't know how you could call verse number 28 and really several verses in this passage anything except exuberant, enthusiastic praise. Look at verse number 28. Thus Israel brought up uh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the cornet, that's the long uh, horn, and with the trumpets and the cymbals and with psalteries, that's a stringed instrument, and with harps and tambourines. And they're, they're, they're celebrating with great uh, a, a band of music and with singing and with shouting. It is enthusiastic praise. Let me encourage you to know that God is so glorious. He is worthy of not uh, dispassionate praise, but enthusiastic praise, extravagant celebration. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to have, I'm confident, this will be today's two Sundays in a row with snow. Next Sunday is going to be sunny and warm, right? I believe it. And when we come together, I hope you'll come ready with enthusiastic praise because he's worthy of that. And then that there will be on display as we gather exuberant joy. We will have this sense of of joy that, that flows out of us. David had such joy that he couldn't help himself but to dance. The Bible says that he was dancing, verse number 29, that King David was dancing and playing these instruments. Interestingly, and I, I, for the sake of time, I'm, you've been so patient, or I hope you've been patient. I can't see you today, but for the sake of time, I won't go into it. But David is dressed not as a king, but as a priest. He's wearing the, the, the linen ephod. He's wearing the, the, the robes of a priest, not the royal robes of the king. And it's because he has come to this moment not to, to, to rule as king, but to worship as priest. And we all must approach worship in this way. We don't, we don't come to worship as the, the one who's ruling. We come to worship to be able to exalt the one who in fact does rule. And so with such joy and with such celebration and with such an acknowledgement of God's grace, we worship him. There's one last line in First Chronicles 15 where it says that uh, David's wife, the daughter of Saul, Michael, 
was looking out the window. She saw David celebrating, worshiping, dancing, and she despised him. If you go back to 2 Samuel 6, it it expounds on this a bit. And it says that she challenged David when he got home and she said, you looked silly and you were, you had taken off your royal robes and in front of all the common people, you were exposing yourself as a commoner, as a, as a priest, but not as the king. You were being too undignified, she's saying. And David's response is telling for us. He says, the reason that I had such joy and the reason that I had such celebration and the reason that I was so Uh, undignified. And the reason that I was worshiping with dancing is because, are you listening? Is because the God of heaven chose me over your father. That might be that her criticisms were motivated by by a sense of uh, her own loss and the loss that her father endured and the fall of his empire, his dynasty. And now God has elevated David. I'm not sure what all was motivating her criticisms, but here's what I know. He said, God chose me out of the sheepfold to be the shepherd of Israel. And because God came to me when I could never have known him and brought me into his fold and made me his child and let me serve his people, what a privilege is mine to worship him. And can I tell you, you're looking at a David today, a David who could have never known God had he not come to me. In his grace, this glorious, limitless, boundless, majestic God came to a sinner named Jim Dykes. And he saved me by his grace. How could I do anything but worship him as he deserves? I hope that you will embrace the lifestyle like David did of worship. And I hope that when we gather next Sunday morning, you will come exalting him bowing low, exuberantly, enthusiastically praising him because he's worthy.